Welcome to The Long Short. My name is Tom Kehoe. This week's episode is a real treat for you and for us as The Long Short sat down with a man who needs no introduction within the alternative investment industry. Sebastian Malaby is the Paul Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is also a multi-award winning author and journalist whose CV includes five books which traverse the finance industry, including the workings of central banks, financial markets, and the definitive history of the hedge fund business. More recently, he has turned his attention to the venture capital industry, and his new book, The Power Law, details the rise of the venture capital industry and its role in finance and business today. Sebastian describes the lengthy process behind his books, which anyone familiar with his work will know is always brimming with incredible details and peppered with the sort of behind-the-scenes anecdotes from industry legends that few would know without his efforts. And we also got his thoughts on the hedge fund industry 12 years after publishing the award-winning More Money Than God, arguably the definitive history of the modern hedge fund industry. I am also very happy to report that we may have secured something of a scoop for the long short by getting a sneak preview into what his next book might be about. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Sebastian Malaby. Sebastian Malaby, you are very welcome to the long short. It's great to be here. So, Sebastian, you've written five books now, each exploring a different slice of financial markets. And your latest book focuses on venture capital. So what was it about the VC world that caught your interest? There were two things I was trying to do with this book. You know, One is simply um, to explain the thought process that goes into capital allocation with venture capital. It's such a different field to any other sort of investment because there are no quantitative metrics that you'd find in public markets uh, or even in big companies. You can't do the price-earnings ratio because a startup company has no earnings. You can't do book-to-value because there's no book value in a startup. There's just you know a couple of people who walk into your office with a dream. Um, and so you know all investment is a tricky bet on an uncertain future, but venture capital struck me as especially uncertain Uh, because of this lack of quantitative benchmarks. And I wanted to try to elucidate how that's even possible to do. And the second thing was the social impact um, and sort of like the impact on growth. Uh, When I began my research, there were people who told me that Silicon Valley was really Stanford Valley, that, you know, the success in innovation over the period from circa 1970 to now was because of Stanford's dominance and the ideas that came out of Stanford. There was another theory that it was all about defence contracts in the early days that got things started. But as I looked at those theories, they didn't really stack up. Um, For one thing, Stanford was a lot weaker than MIT uh, back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, And in terms of defence contracts, actually more went to Boston than to the West Coast. So I didn't believe the standard theories and... I had this hunch, which I think my book has substantiated, um, that actually venture capital, which creates the perfect climate for lots of people to try lots of startups and iterate the experiments until you get a hit, uh, that is the way to to do applied science. Um, so those were my two goals. And Sebastian, the power law is yet another superlative piece of work that you've done, and, and congratulations uh, on on that, um, can you give us a sense then, you know, for our listeners of the journey that you spent when researching and writing the book? Sure. Um, all of these projects take me a long time, you know, four or five years, roughly speaking. And that's partly because I'm trying to really get close to the key 
success stories in the sector. So with hedge funds, you know, I wasn't going to publish a book until I'd physically sat down a couple of times with people like, you know, Stan Druckenmiller and Paul Tudor Jones and George Soros and uh, all of the other people I was writing about. And equally with um, the power law, I wanted to, you know, spend a lot of time with the key partnerships, you know, Sequoia, Kleiner Perkins, Axel, Benchmark, um, Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and it takes time to win access and you have to get to know the people who can introduce you to the other people who will then introduce you to the real people. And so that's why this takes a long time. And there's also a kind of um, journey of understanding because initially um, you hear a lot of things and some of them make sense, some of them don't quite make sense. You have an initial set of questions which probably a year or two later are going to seem naive and beside the point. Um, and in the case of venture capital, the thing I had to get past was this habit in Silicon Valley of offering cute, serendipitous stories about how big investments took place. So if you ask for the origin story of, you know, uh, Stripe, which is, I think, probably the biggest private tech company right now, huge payments uh, empire started by Patrick and John Collison, the two Irish brothers who moved to the U.S., um, and started this company when they were incredibly young. Um, you know, the stories I heard, both from Patrick and John and from uh, Michael Moritz of Sequoia, uh, were kind of a little, um, you know, they were lovely stories, but you kind of think, well, there's got to be more to it than that. So Patrick told me, for example, that he went to see Michael Moritz at Sequoia, and when he came out of the building and Michael was chatting with him on the threshold, Michael noticed um, uh, Patrick's bicycle, which was locked up against the perimeter gate. And so he could see that Patrick was riding a sleek uh, Cervelo road bike. And Michael, being a cyclist himself, kind of latched on. And they had this conversation about what was your speed on a certain um, famous climb um, in the Silicon Valley, Valley area. And when Patrick had a good time, that showed he was a gritty customer and therefore maybe a good startup founder. Um, and, and that was kind of how they clicked. Well, maybe, <laughs> but is that really how you allocate capital and spur innovation? It's about chatter about bicycles. It's gotta be more than that, right? Um, and so to get past those cute stories and really understand the thought process in a deeper way of how you allocate capital and all that uncertainty that I was describing before, you know, that, that took a while. Um, and eventually with Sequoia, um, I was able to spend a long time with the leaders of the partnership. And I think I got a pretty deep understanding of how they use things like behavioral science um, to sharpen their decision making process, um, how they really use teamwork within their partnership so that you get all the skills of all the partners at the disposal of the uh, portfolio company to try to maximize its chances of success. So there's a bunch of things that Sequoia does, which I think really do explain the alpha, but the initial story was cute, but not really informative. It's so interesting you say that actually, because w what struck me in uh, all your writings really is that incredible attention to detail and and, and uh, the anecdotes are, are fun, as you say, but just um, really providing uh, insights into industries that are otherwise quite opaque. And I think the power law 
similar to uh, More Money Than God and, and other books could be seen as sort of a definitive history, uh, in this case, of the American venture capital industry and how that's developed. And, I, you know, I really should say it probably is a, a, a must read for anyone looking to get into the space or looking to learn more about it. But for anyone who hasn't got to it yet, um, could we just take a step back and could you explain what you mean by the power law and, and how that relates to venture capital? I think the easiest way to get across the meaning of the power law is to start by what it isn't. Um, in statistics, we're pretty familiar with the bell curve distribution. That's the normal distribution, where most of the observations in a data set cluster around the average. So right in the middle of the curve, you, it kind of peaks at the top, and then it tapers off towards the sides. And so an example of that sort of distribution would be the height of American men. The average American man is five foot ten inches tall, um, and um, that's the most common also. So it's the modal height as well as the average, and it's the mean. Uh, it comes in the middle of the distribution. And nearly all American men are within three inches of that average. And so it's a pretty fat top of the bell curve. Most of the observations are clustered in, in that area. Um, and somebody who's like way off the average, who is an NBA star, maybe seven feet tall, is extremely rare. Um, and therefore, almost you can discount that kind of size of person because it's so unusual if you're thinking about, you know, what the average is. So if there's a, a cinema and there's 100 men in the cinema and there's an NBA star at the back and he's bored of the uh, film and he walks out halfway through... Um, that seven-footer leaving doesn't change the height of the residual man by more than a fraction of an inch. Um, on the other hand, there are some distributions in life where, uh, you know, there's a few uh, examples that account for all of the, the numbers. So, um, you know, 80% of the people might live in 20% of the cities. 80% uh, of the peas might come from 20% of the pea plants. Um, and if you think about not the height of American men, but the wealth of American men, and you think about that cinema, and at the back, instead of the NBA star, you've got Jeff Bezos, and he gets bored and he walks out halfway through, the average of the residual man in the movie theater, the average wealth is going to plummet just by one person leaving, because... Um, this, is a, this is a distribution with extreme uh, outcomes. Um, and venture investing is like that. It's not like normal stock market investing where it's very rare to get you know, a position that moves by more than a few percent in a day. Um, uh, this is something where many of your bets will go to zero uh, and a, a small minority will do a thousand percent, i.e. 10x your original money, or more than that. Uh, and so all of the returns in a venture portfolio tend to come from this small tail of extremely successful bets. It's just a very distant distribution to what you see in the rest of finance. And the book captures a lot of these stories, and certainly when reading it, you get a sense of the amount of time and effort and thought that goes into all of the conversations that you mentioned and the various transactions or would-be transactions that might have taken place um the 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 pro the power law function then would push the protagonist as you say into making the outlandish bet 
and you've alluded to it, but could you give us a sense of as to how long the VCs would spend on projects that ultimately failed? Or, you know, as you say, how many investments would succeed versus that that would fail? Yeah, the number that succeed is pretty low. I mean, first of all, a venture investor will be seeing lots and lots of pitches from startups and only investing in a small fraction of them. So right there, they've screened out, you know, probably 98% of what they see. Um, and they're investing in the 2%. And of that elite, in fact, um, a typical outcome, if you made 10 investments, might be that sort of five or six or seven um, pretty much go to zero. You get no money back at all. Um, one or two might go sideways and kind of return your money or a tiny bit more, but nothing much. And then one or two will hit it out of the park if you're being successful. And therefore, you know, make more than the more than 10x, which in a portfolio of 10 bets, if they're equally sized, you know, one bet like that of 10x return will make back the entire fund. The second one will double the value of the fund. Um, so that's roughly the maths involved. So just to make this real for our listeners, then, do you have a favorite case study that you came across uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners? There's lots of great case studies in my book. In a way, my book is a, it's a history of venture investing, but it's also, you could think of it as a, a series of sort of colorful case studies strung together to, to tell that history. And so whether it's, you know, Fairchild Semiconductor right at the beginning of the story or Intel or Apple or Genentech, the first biotech company, or, you know, Cisco or Netscape or, you know, all, all these companies, I go through the history. But I guess one fun one to think about is Facebook, um, where um, Axel, one of the storied uh, venture partnerships in Silicon Valley, um, won the battle um, to get to invest in Facebook. People kind of knew, just based on the early metrics, how quickly it was going to spread. On the very first campuses where Facebook rolled out its product, the uptake was extraordinarily uh, fast. So you could see this exponential growth, and uh, a lot of investors were excited. Uh, and Facebook ultimately went with Axel, and that was partly because... Axel had excellent teamwork within the partnership. There was a young um, Harvard, uh, a Stanford student um, who was sort of on campus and his, he was getting a retainer from Axel just to pass along tips about what students were interested in and what might be the next big thing. He alerted um, one of the younger partners at uh, Axel, Kevin Efrasi, uh, that this could be an investment worth looking at. Kevin kind of did the research to sort of look at the metrics, how fast was it growing. Um, when he finally got a chance to go and see uh, the Facebook founders, he brought along with him the founder of Axel, um, Arthur Patterson, who was kind of around 60 years old at the time. So you have the young partner and the old partner going together and making a joint judgment on how compelling the investment opportunity looked. And then once they decided it really was very compelling and they definitely wanted to do it, um, it took yet another partner um, to actually close the deal, somebody who had a great connection with another investor, uh, Donald Graham from the Washington Post Company, who was 
sort of in line to invest and they had to kind of edge him out and that was a delicate diplomatic process and so that required the skills of yet another investor so you have this teamwork inside the partnership which is in contrast to some sort of famous but actually in the end less successful venture partnerships like Kleiner Perkins where the lack of teamwork internally meant that everybody was just sort of stabbing each other in the back and ultimately that's not the way you win it's it's a team sport I, I, I love how you recalled the um, the meeting that Mark Zuckerberg had where he turned up in his pyjamas he turned up late and he turned up in some pyjamas and then he presented something which was not about Facebook at all I mean just the temerity to do something like that knowing that you know you have the power so to speak just fascinating yeah, that, 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 that's right. He was really just mocking um, the venture capitalists that he was talking to. Um, in this case, it was Sequoia, uh, the top firm in Silicon Valley. But um, Sean Parker, who was Mark Zuckerberg's sort of uh, business partner and, and kind of senior advisor, I think, you know, Mark was probably 19 and Sean was perhaps 25 or something. Uh, but, but 25 made him senior. And... Uh, um, Sean Parker had been fired from his previous startup uh, by Sequoia, and so he was just out to exact sweet revenge by having Mark go along and, you know, arrive late, wearing flip-flops and pyjamas, presenting not about Facebook, but by a sort of about a side hustle called Wirehog that nobody wanted to invest in, and presenting a slide deck, which was 10 reasons why you should not back us. Uh, I think reason number two or something was... Um, because Sean Parker is involved. Um, so they were just taking the mickey. Um, and and that's, that's what partly gave Axel, one of the rival VCs, the chance to push its way in and, and get the deal. Fascinating. Um, Sebastian, was there anything that particularly surprised you about the VC industry when, when, when you researched for the book? I think the biggest surprise came when I went to China. Um, I had figured out by the time that I committed to writing the book that there was a good, persuasive, strong story to be told, that the reason for applied science flourishing in Silicon Valley was because of venture capital. Venture capital created the climate um, where money, ideas, and people could circulate quickly in the ecosystem, um, forming these sort of coalitions of teams that created startups um, and then if the startup didn't work, it would fail quickly and those people would be recycled into some other experiment. And that's the best way to do startups and, and commercial tech. Uh, so I understood that about Silicon Valley, but I wasn't expecting to find the same in China because I thought, you know, it's a very different model of capitalism. The government has a lot of control in sort of directing where investment goes and nurturing strategic businesses. And it was only when I actually went to China and tracked down the origin story of all the famous uh, early internet companies, whether it's Alibaba or Tencent or, or Baidu or Sina or Sohu or NetEase or EachNet or Ctrip, all of these early Chinese internet startups actually had American-style venture capital. I mean, um, you know, Silicon Valley lawyers incorporating these companies with dispute settlement under New York law with an aspiration to go public in the US on the NASDAQ um, and structured importantly in a way that enabled Alibaba, for example, to give 
employee stock options to the early people it hired. And that really opened up the possibility of hiring terrific people because you could give them terrific upside. Um, and, you know, it was, you know, the, the biggest, the most successful uh, venture capital company in China is Sequoia China, which, of course, is the same company as Sequoia US, which is the most successful in Silicon Valley. So the, the people, are the, are the companies are the same, the people have the same approach. And it's really a kind of second proof that this venture playbook um, creates innovation. I just want to go back to uh, the Facebook example, because what's so interesting there is that it seems like quite a significant outlier in the, the power dynamic that, that you mentioned and in that story of, of Mark Zuckerberg. Because very often, if I understand it correctly, the, the, the dynamic is the, the reverse in that uh, the VC funds will often have very strict screening process. And, and I think you alluded to that. And uh, the 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 firm seeking funding will be the ones that that have to sort of play ball, and a lot of the time these fund uh, these firms won't get funding. Um, was there any stories you came across of firms that maybe failed the first time round to secure VC funding, but ultimately went on to become very successful? Yeah, um, you know, if you take PayPal for example, um, they pitched the idea of money that you could email uh, to, you know, dozens of venture capitalists and were turned down. And eventually um, they got money from a slightly offbeat funder, which was the sort of venture arm of Nokia, the um, Scandinavian phone company. Um, and it just so happened that Nokia Ventures had somebody who understood a lot about cryptography. And um, PayPal's selling point was really that it had such good cryptography that you could encrypt money and safely send it over email. And Max Levchin, one of the founders, alongside Peter Thiel, uh, was himself a deep kind of crypto person. Crypto in the sense of cryptography, not in terms of tokens. Um, and so Nokia invested, but they had been turned down by tons of people. And then they went on, of course, to be a very successful company and a, and a great financial exit. Sebastian, the, the book you know, mainly focuses on the Silicon Valley uh, VC landscape uh, and, and you've mentioned obviously the chapter on China as well. It doesn't really go into a huge amount of detail on the European landscape. Um, so from your research on VC, uh, do you have any observations then around the, um, the VC landscape in Europe today? Yeah, I'm very bullish on Europe. Um although I didn't, you're right, include it um, in my book, mostly for space reasons. Um, but the reason I'm bullish is that uh, I think, you know, one can tell a story that up to about 2005, um, the way you did West Coast venture capital was a bit of a secret. Uh, and... Um, Silicon Valley stood out from the rest of the world because it had a, almost a monopoly on this kind of extremely risk-friendly venture investing that was willing to back ideas that didn't really have a proper team yet, but the VC would invest anyway and then help to form the team by helping to recruit the people needed. Um, and so that model was different to, let's say, the venture capital model that existed uh, in Boston or New York, um, 
just more forward-leading, more risk-friendly. And then in 2005, um, Sequoia and a bunch of other of the uh, uh, California companies went into China. Then in 2006, they went into India and Southeast Asia. And meanwhile, um, there's been a spread into Europe, a bit later than China and Southeast Asia, perhaps, but still it's coming. Uh, Sequoia has an office now in London, Index um, Ventures, which is a kind of bicontinental uh, venture company, extremely good, um, has operations both in California and in Europe. Um, Axel has an office in London, very successful. Atomico is a great um, European VC based in London, founded by Niklas Fenstrom, who was the founder of Skype. And he understood the California model because as a, Stripe, as a Skype founder, he had received capital um, from um, American venture investors. So he kind of got how it worked. And so basically, you now have in Europe and particularly in London, a very sophisticated um, group of venture investors who know exactly uh, how the power law works, exactly how you help to build uh, the teams of the startups that you back. Um, and they are partnering up with um, software engineers of whom there are many excellent people uh, in Europe. In fact, there are more software engineers in Europe than there are in the United States, you know, to learn fact. And, and the blockage in the past had been, you know, Europe didn't have the culture that, you know, failing is a learning experience. They just thought failure was failure. <laughs> and so software engineers would stay at big companies because it was too risky to go do a startup. But with this new type of venture capital available now in Europe, um, it means that you can raise money easily. If you fail, you'll get a second chance. Um, it has sort of de-risked the decision to be an entrepreneur. And uh, not completely. Entrepreneurship is always risky, but it's made it much less risky than it would be without the VCs there. Uh, and I think, therefore, that Europe, which has always had a sophisticated group of software people, a sophisticated market of consumers and great universities. What it was missing is risk-friendly VC, and now it's got that. AIMA's annual flagship regulatory event, the Global Policy and Regulatory Forum, returns in person for the first time in two years, this November, in Paris. The event gives the hedge fund industry a unique opportunity to engage with senior policymakers and regulators from around the world as they explore the overall macro outlook of the industry, while considering how investment strategies are evolving in light of investor and regulatory pressures. The full-day conference will include a range of keynotes, panels and breakout sessions for delegates to choose between, as well as long-awaited networking opportunities with peers both old and new. To read more or to register, visit our website, www.ama.org. I just want to change tack slightly because, as we mentioned at the top, uh, this is not your first book on alternative investments. And uh, the one that uh, I wanted to bring up was More Money Than God, which focuses uh, in a similar fashion, but on the hedge fund industry. So just first of all, did you find any parallels between the types of personalities that ended up in VC versus hedge fund principles? I think there's an interesting contrast um, between hedge fund personalities and venture capital personalities, just to simplify a little bit, uh, if you'll allow me, just for effect. 
Um, you know, a, a venture capitalist has to be a, a connector, an extrovert, a sort of schmoozer. Um, uh, and, you know, you could describe the job of a venture capitalist as being get up in the morning, have breakfast with one person, then have 14 cups of coffee with different people. Hopefully the coffee is decaffeinated uh, before they go to bed, right? Because they're trying to find the next deal they might invest in. They are trying to find the five engineers that could be hired by the person that they invested in last month. Um, they're, they're super connectors. That's what they do. Hedge funds is a very different thing. Um, you can invest in a um, bond or equity without actually meeting the bond or equity. It's not a person. You don't have to schmooze it. You just tell your broker to execute the trade. Uh, so you can be an analytical person, you know, hidden behind a bunch of screens um, and rather insular and not really be schmoozing. Um, and that will work fine. And it might even be slightly an advantage. You don't want to tell other investors what your positions are because you don't want a crowded trade in many cases. Um, and so when Lewis Bacon, one of the macro investors I wrote about in More Money Than God, you know, did really well and bought himself a private island, um, people joked that it made no difference because he was so insular anyway. Um, and, and, and as I said, that's a bit of a contrast between the introverts and the extroverts. And Sebastian, despite the efforts of, of yourself and, and, and what we do at AMA and others across the industry, you know, many people still see hedge funds, and you alluded to it with the example you've just given, um, hedge funds and more specifically, I guess, short sellers as being the villains in financial markets. We had the events of GameStop um, earlier in the year, and they seem to carry more weight than events like, say, Wirecard or Enron. So I put it to you then, what should the hedge fund industry be doing and, and, and how can they you know, ultimately change negative perceptions about them? Or is it just uh, a fact of life that there's always going to be some form of negative perception about hedge funds? Well, you know, like you, I've been around this debate for, for quite a lot of years and I've come to the view that it's just really, really hard to shift the perception that there's something evil about short selling um, or there's something evil about hedge funds. I mean, maybe it would help to just try to drop the name hedge funds and talk about investment firms. Um, perhaps there's less of a stigma there that it would kind of open people's eyes to the fact that, you know, hedge fund people are really just investors, just like retail traders are investors. Um, and so it's a bit rich when people on Wall Street bets and these Reddit groups, you know, who are groups of retail investors who are perfectly happy, by the way, to go short stuff. And in fact, Robin Hood, um, one of the attractions is you can do leverage and you can go short and all that stuff. Um, and so they're being hypocritical when they say hedge fund people shouldn't go short because they do it themselves. Um, but how do you shift the perception? I know from personal experience that when I write a piece in the Washington Post where I sometimes do uh, newspaper columns, and in the case of GameStop, I did defend the short sellers in the hedge fund space and say it was absurd that they were being attacked by these hypocritical Reddit people. Um, the deluge of hate mail I got um, extended to people actually making YouTube videos calling me out as a moron. Um, I mean, just you, you, it's really, really hard to shift the perception. Um, I, I don't know what to say, how to fix it. 
I was uh, covering GameStop when it first happened uh, as a journalist in my former life, and I did notice the same thing that uh, any tweet, any coverage just got, I guess, picked up by some sort of algorithm that, that then ended up on a Reddit site, and it was incredible, the, the backlash and the scale of it, um, pretty much regardless of what you were covering, unless you were... Uh, unless you were firmly in the GameStop Reddit camp, it was very one-sided. I, I just wanted actually, just on that theme, uh, since you brought out your books, we've also seen uh, Hollywood has, has had a go at depicting hedge funds, and um, we've had, obviously had the big short being the, the main one that people might know, also uh, Margin Call, and then there's been TV series like Billions, and uh, in the UK, the BBC's, uh, industry uh, season two at least has some uh, hedge fund people appear and and as always they seem to turn up as these larger than life characters living these lives of excess and you, you know we we spoke about private islands before and and maybe there is some truth there but do you feel that uh, the Hollywood or, or these productions get it right really are they, are they fair to the hedge fund industry? I mean, I think portraying successful hedge fund investors as people living, you know, plutocratic lives, probably involving a bit of excess, I suspect that's fair. I mean, I called my money, my book More Money Than God, you know, for a reason. The, people do make extraordinary amounts of money um, when they succeed well uh, as investors. I happen to think that the investment process they go through is good for the health of financial markets and for intelligent capital allocation. So I'm not bothered by the fact that people get very rich as a result. Um, I think maybe, you know, we could debate what the right level of income tax is. Okay. But, um, but I'm not, um, the fact that people get rich doesn't bother me. Um, if TV series have fun portraying that wealth, I don't think that's wrong. Um, I think the one thing I would say about uh, the Big Short, which was a great movie, and I'm sure people listening may have watched it. Um, the the thing I th thing I slightly regretted about that story, the way it was told, is that it really goes down deep. I mean, it doubles down on the idea that the people who shorted the subprime mortgage bubble were these wacky kind of crazy people who had drum kits in their offices and, and so on. The reality is that the biggest um, short position was put on by John Paulson. Um, and I know John Paulson, I interviewed him for my book. I interviewed Paolo Pellegrini, who was the analyst who did a lot of work developing the thesis for the, for the big short um, for Paulson. And these are pretty sort of sober, besuited analysts. They don't have drum kits uh, in, their, in their offices. And I think it's sort of, you know, the drum kit thing is good TV, but it, it, it implies that you had to be kind of a wacky eccentric, and that's where the trade came from. No, the trade came in the case of Paulson & Co. from, you know, buying a ton of proprietary data about historical house price behavior, um, investing in extra computer servers so that you could house all this data, 
and then hiring extra data analysts to like make sense of all this data. I mean, they did serious work. They spent millions of dollars on it um, to come up with enough conviction to put a huge, huge short position on. That to me is a less sexy, but more realistic representation of where um, the hedge fund conviction came for that trade. And, and as you say, Sebastian, it's, it's having the conviction to pursue that view as well. Uh, you know, when, when you have all sorts of naysayers as well, um, uh, you know, really challenging these positions. Because we had earlier in the year, we had Dan McCrum, um, you know, who, who wrote his book on, on um, short selling and wire card. And he relayed that very point back to us as well. Um, Ray Dalio, you, you would have you would have um, heard uh, and you would have seen the news. Um, founder of Bridgewater, he's recently announced that he stepped down from his role as the co-CIO and the co-chair. So that's effectively then ceded control of Bridgewater um, as part of their succession plan. Uh, having written more money than God, what is it now? It's twelve years and since that's been published and, and you would have um, written in intimate detail about the various personalities that underpinned the modern hedge fund industry. Um, and it seems like Ray Dalio, he's part of that, well, he is certainly part of that era. So how important then do you believe that succession planning is for the continued development of the hedge fund business? You know, the traditional answer would have been it's not important at all because the way the hedge fund industry does work and should work is sort of more Darwinian than that. In other words, you get, you know, a great, great macro trader like Stan Druckenmiller or Paul Tudor Jones or Lewis Bacon. You know, they have um, success. They build a company around them. Um, but it's actually not a tragedy if they get to a certain point. Um, they don't want the hassle of running outside money. They retreat and just invest their own money for a while and then ultimately they retire and then their position is sort of taken up by uh, other trading firms that spring up to to you know exploit the alpha that's been left on the table and that feels like you don't you don't need a succession of within the firm it's fine for one firm to fade out and another to come in and if you look at the way June and Robertson closed down Tiger uh, management and use the remaining assets to seed other funds, including Tiger Global, you know, that's a very good model. It's good for the LPs who are invested. They just shift their funds into a, a younger manager and that can be very lucrative. And it's good for the industry because it kind of creates this sort of, you know, constant rejuvenation. I think the wrinkle and why the answer has changed a little bit is that, you know, there are now these big hedge funds that have become franchises and Bridgewater is one of them. And so Ray Dalio in retiring is bequeathing a going concern, which has a big brand, a lot of assets under management, a lot of you know credibility with allocators. And so that is a handover, not a fade out. And it's even more true of companies that are more explicitly sort of quantitative I mean, Bridgewater, I think of as being a kind of hybrid. There is a lot of uh, data-driven research uh, and I think a big accumulation of knowledge within Bridgewater as generations of 
analysts have looked carefully at different details of the way the global financial system works and each time they've do a research project it kind of gets added to the database and so knowledge is being built up and that's why there is something to hand on it's not a, just a sort of intuitive individual who looks at markets and makes you know real-time decisions it's a system and that's why Dahlia can retire and and somebody else can take over but for syst but for, for kind of systematic hedge funds like two sigma um, it's even more true um, and when computers are doing the trading the computer scientists that built them can retire and it's fine so there I think succession planning uh, is important we, we've mentioned a few of the biggest names in the industry uh, so far during this conversation and something that's stuck out to me is that although they're undoubtedly you know some of the sharpest minds in financial markets today or you know during their uh, as they were as they were growing these firms that are now household names there does seem to be a common thread that they were also presented with opportunities in the form of being the first to develop new strategies or, or take advantage of major macroeconomic trends of their time. And, and I just wanted to ask you whether you think we are still in a place where newcomers to the industry or, or, or those looking to reinvent themselves are able to do the same because financial markets are a lot more sophisticated now. Many strategies that were once niche, I would say, are now quite crowded. And it, it would be interesting to hear whether, you know, the big names of, of George Soros, Jim Simons, even Alfred Winslow Jones, could, could, could they be as successful as they were then today? I think it is possible still because financial markets are not static. They're always evolving and there's going to be a new frontier. The frontier might be geographic. It could be that, you know, you get enough depth in African stock markets over the next, you know, 10, 15 years that there is an opportunity there to, to trade them in a way that you can't today. Um, and you can do stuff today at the margins, but it's it's not a not a super rich environment for hedge funds. So that's one kind of frontier, but then there's also new financial instruments that get invented, new kinds of data that become available. Um, you can apply increasingly sophisticated algorithms to that data to get trading signals. So, you know, the application of artificial intelligence is already going on. One assumes that if quantum computing realizes the potential that some people see in it, um, quantum trading will be a big deal. So I very much think that there are always new frontiers to be conquered. Um, and, and Sebastian, one area that has seen a, a real frenzy of activity and continues to fascinate and, and indeed fascinate us on the long short is the emergence of, of digital assets. And we've even heard some comparisons being drawn to you know, the emergence of, of digital assets and that of hedge funds you know, in the modern age back in the 1990s. What's your take on digital assets? I'm very intrigued by digital assets. I've actually spent um, part of the last sort of six or eight months since my book came out um, thinking about whether I should write a book about <laughs> digital assets and going off and speaking to people who invest in this space. And I mean, I, I love the stories. It's just incredible how um, individuals have been able to do um, projects on Ethereum that become enormous and it's just the work of one one or two people. 
You think about something like Uniswap, which allows you to switch between different crypto assets, created by one young engineer who'd just been laid off from Siemens, and he was kind of doing a hobby, and all of a sudden it's this incredibly big thing which is worth you know multiple billions of dollars, and by the way, after the correction, is still worth well over a billion uh, dollars. Um, so the stories are amazing. The, the kind of claims made on behalf of crypto in terms of how it might change the world are intellectually fascinating. Um, but what I've learned is that any conversation I have with a crypto investor, um, there'll be a question I ask, you know, 20 minutes in or something, and the answer will be a pause followed by, it's super early. That means we don't know the answer. <laughs> this is all evolving. We're kind of making it up as we go along. And I, you know, I think that's right. And although there are certain things in DeFi, for example, where you can borrow in DeFi, you can trade in DeFi, and all these decentralized protocols with smart contracts that make that possible, you know, MakerDAO, Aave, Uniswap, are just amazing um, as pieces of, of infrastructure. There is the kind of bigger question when you step back, which is, why do we actually need tokens? I mean, it's great that we can trade them and it's fun for speculation and, you know, that's all good. But, but it's not ultimately the dollar, uh, which you need if you're going to pay taxes. And you probably need if you're going to pay for, like, tons of other stuff you want in the real world. And crypto assets haven't solved that problem of, crossing the chasm, if you ask somebody who is fundamentally not interested in crypto why they're going to have to use it, just like you really have to have a smartphone these days or you couldn't really get by without a computer, um, crypto is not there yet. And I think it's interesting. I believe it will get there, by the way. I just don't know which bits of it will get there. So I think it's a very speculative area. Very interesting. Well, to me, that sounds like the beginning of a thesis anyway. And uh, from from your work so far, what I've appreciated personally is, is your even handedness when it comes to these topics that, you know, as we mentioned before, often get a bit of a, a grilling on the uh, on the Reddit forums or, or sensationalized in in Hollywood. So I'd look forward to anything you, you put out on the digital asset space. Um, and you preempted my last question, actually, which was just to ask you what you're working on now. But uh, I guess all that's left is just to say, you know, as, as someone who is always looking out for a guide or a history lesson on the alternative investment industry, uh, I was very keen to speak to you today to, to really get an idea of the process that goes on. And, you know, I, I mentioned before the incredible detail that you get in your stories. Um, so thank you very much for your time today on the long short and indulging us. Uh, it's been really a pleasure. Great to be with you. Hi, this is Bill Kelly, President and CEO of the Kai Association, and you're listening to Amos, the Long Short Podcast. Join me in episode 14, where I discuss my vision for improving financial literacy and understanding of the alternative investment industry, as well as keeping Kai's curriculum up to date with the market. And this is a never-ending job. Enjoy and stay educated. Longshore was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to the Longshore on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.